Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. Very glad to have you here with us. Uh, my apologies for my croaky voice. I've been in bed the last few days uh, reading Agatha Christie uh, murder mysteries, actually, if the, the truth is known, uh, quite ill. So I'm uh, feeling a little bit better now, for which I'm thankful and um, very much enjoying this opportunity to discuss the Bible with some friends. My name's Cameron. I'm, I'm speaking to you now from Launceston in Tasmania. Oh. I'm speaking from Launceston also, Ken here, and uh, Cam, I admire your ability to have the degree of concentration necessary to follow an Agatha Christie murder mystery, even when you're unwell yeah. in bed. When I'm in that position, I'm not thinking. <laughs> when when you are ill in bed, though, Ken, and you doze off in a feverish sort of dream, and the various plots of the four Agatha Christie novels <laughs> become entwined, it makes it much more difficult when you awake to... To pick up the book from where you're up to. <laughs> uh, well, I'm Luke and I'm up in Lake Macquarie. And I'm Lachlan, also in Lake Macquarie, and looking forward to a fun conversation. Uh, for those of you who have been listening to our conversations over the last few weeks, we've been loosely tracking along the same themes as the, the Seventh-day Adventist Quarterly, which is about rest. But we've been uh, delving into the book of Proverbs. Uh, partly because it's a book that we've not looked at often and because we've found it so fruitful for all the interesting perspectives that we've been able to uncover. Uh, this week, each of us have chosen our favourite proverb about the Sabbath. And, uh, <laughs> uh, there are there are no proverbs about the Sabbath. This is what we discovered when we, <laughs> when we came. Uh, so, uh, undaunted, I thought that perhaps... Uh, it might be a good idea to divert slightly back to the Psalms. I know there's a different uh, genre. Uh, one is wisdom literature and one is worship literature. Uh, but they're next to each other in the Bible and we often refer to Psalms and Proverbs. So then I, I, I thought it'd be interesting to see what the Psalms have to say about Sabbath. And uh, there was no no Psalm about the Sabbath either. And that uh, puzzled me in a way that the the book of wisdom literature and the book of worship literature wouldn't have anything to say about Sabbath. So I think that that's a, a place where we might start our discussion and then we, we will get into the book of Proverbs uh, because there are some some uh, themes in Proverbs that will prove fruitful, I think, relating to, to the topic. But first of all, why nothing about the Sabbath? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, the Sabbath has always felt like one of the... It's arbitrary... The seventh dayness of it is a bit arbitrary in that sense, but the just the empirical observation of it seems to make common sense. And we've touched on the fact that that Proverbs seems regularly to explore issues which pertain to common sense. Um, so that doesn't add anything useful, Cam, other than just to highlight the the glaring omission. Maybe uh, the some the maybe the Proverbs really did have a great deal to say about the Sabbath, but that page went missing in one of the early manuscripts. Well, that was a that was an oversight, Lachlan, of the of uh, I was going to say the Holy Spirit, <laughs> um, or whatever medium was used for inspiring these proverbs. I think I think it's fair to say that if an Adventist were assembling a book about wisdom, um, maybe divided into twenty eight sections, uh, we would insist on having something in there about the Sabbath. One of the one of the um, justifications for the Sabbath that we use, um, and in my view, it's not re a, a, an adequate justification, um, uh, but it is 
an argument that's used in favour of the Sabbath nonetheless is its benefit. Uh, so we're always told uh, it's of great benefit. Of course, the fact that something's of benefit doesn't mean it is uh, uh, one of the commandments, although many of the commandments also have benefits. So it works in one direction, but not necessarily in the other. It's also um, not... not. Uh, but it seems to me that you're quite right that... Uh... Oh, go on. No, you go, Ken. Well, I'll just finish this bit. It seems to me quite right to say that um, if an Adventist were compiling a book of wisdom literature, uh, a prominent part of it would be uh, keep the Sabbath because it is of great benefit to you. Mm. Uh, in the same way that uh, honesty is of uh, great benefit, um, uh, you know, doing what wisdom requires is of great benefit to you. It'll lead to a long life um, and uh, lots Does of good can? things will happen. Um uh, well, I'm using the same sort of argument that uh, Proverbs uses in relation to wisdom. Uh, so um, uh, I think um, uh, in, in chapter 9 and verse 11, for through me your days will be many and years will be added to your life, uh, when it's talking about wisdom. So we'd, we'd say the same sort mm. of thing about you know, the, the, the healthy benefits of, of Sabbath keeping. Mm. Which which Luke, is all Luke, all you refute good. Ken first, I'm, and then I'll <laughs> I'll do the gentle refute, and then you come in with the with the uh, okay. the hammer to my anvil. Um, <laughs> all all I was going to say is that that utility is 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 a valid argument for doing many things, and it's perfectly <laughs> valid to have that as a reason to keep the Sabbath. From a moral and ethical standpoint, it's not a. Uh, it's not a particularly impressive reason to keep the Sabbath, just because it is of use to us. Um, because the implication there is, if or when the Sabbath becomes not of use, should it at any point become a liability, you would then be free to jettison. Yeah, you would then be free to jettison it um, with it without any sort of qualms, because it's no longer useful. Um, and and I've I've thought about this a lot in the context of values and. Um, uh, and, and ethics, you know, we, we all profess to have certain values. And as Christians, we certainly profess to have, to have certain values. Um, but are they really your values? If you abandon them the moment, it's, it's not expedient, you know? Um, mm. if, if you profess to say that honesty is important, and then the moment telling a lie becomes beneficial to you, or telling the truth is, is scary or risky you you cease to be honest, uh, then it's not really your value. And I, I think there's something similar applies to, to, to something like religious beliefs. If, if you abandon them the moment they're not useful to you, did you really believe them? <laughs> now, on that note, Luke, uh, I remember once being in conversation with Eric Magnuson, and he was discussing nuclear power, the pros and cons of nuclear power. And he said, well, he said, it doesn't really matter. If we can find some other power sources, we will. And he said, the minute that everyone wakes up in the morning and there's no electricity and they have to take one cold shower, everyone's opinion on nuclear power will change immediately. <laughs> he said, in general, he said, in general, people have very strong principles. And if you don't like them, they'll change them. <laughs> and the point I was going to make was much along the same lines as, as Luke's. I like to say that the utility, um, there are lots of things that are useful. and uh, But useful in what sense? Stealing money is useful. Like the people who appear before you can who have stolen money have done it because of utilitarian it's arguments. I don't think there's many ideologically driven 
theft that goes on. <laughs> so, but then, of course, the consequence eventually catches up for them with them. And one of the points about wisdom is learning to discern uh, the long-term effect of our choices and seeing where the greatest utility actually lies. Because, and but even even though there is, I think, long-term significant utility in Sabbath, it reinforces a very social. Uh, sorry, not of social. It reinforces a very selfish point of view about what the purpose of the sabbath is it's for my benefit so that i can connect with god and i want a sabbath blessing and it's rest for me and all the rest of it and um in my mind the sabbath commandments are much more community focused about about providing rest for your animals and your servants and the stranger within your gates and um uh you know what happens if someone needed helping on sabbath but it was going to cost you serious effort health health detriments it's like the adventist health message for what are we preserving our health? So our health, I'm not arguing that it's important to as much as possible preserve our health, <coughs> especially after having spent two days <laughs> in bed. But I'm saying that we're preserving our health for some purpose, surely. Like, um, is it to avoid meeting God as no, long Cam, as possible? It's all, is that, no, is it's that a matter of principle. Like the early Adventist pioneer famously said, he was going to live the health message even if it killed him. Oh, good. This is this is a bit of a side uh, note, and feel yeah. free to cut this out. But if I could have one wish fulfilled at the moment, it would be to live in a world in which opinions were not held in such high importance. Um, uh, mm. th- I'm increasingly reminded of the quote, which I will I will paraphrase for politeness' sake that. Opinions are very much like the utilitarian part of people's bottoms. Everyone has one, and they all... Well, a lot of them stink. <laughs> They're yeah. not inherently of value. Yeah. And I think it comes... It, it, trying valiantly to tie that into what we're actually talking about. I, I think if it, opinions have come to be such an perceived important part of modern discourse... Because we don't, as societies, actually have any higher values. We've stopped caring about truth. Yeah. Right? If you care about truth, then you automatically render your own opinion less important. Because when presented with evidence, you will change your opinion. If you don't care about truth, then there's no obligation to change your opinion. And you can wallow in the comfort of thinking yourself right without fear of being contradicted because because you 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 no longer believe in objective truth um it's very similar things in terms of honesty and other positive character traits opinion has supplanted all of them and it's because we don't hold them and we don't hold them because sometimes they're inconvenient and we just don't have character as a society anymore it seems it reminds me of a cartoon that i saw recently uh, Luke, uh, and it was a ga- a game show called uh, Facts Don't Matter, um, and uh, and and the 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 tag on the bottom of it was the ho- the host of the show saying to one of the contestants, "Well, uh, John, your answer was correct, um, uh, but Peter shouted his answer louder, so he gets one point, and Mary was offended by your answer, so she gets a bonus point." Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a there's a sketch that I think I've referred to that's a um, Webb Mitchell and Webb uh, Mitchell and Webb sketch where they're at the news desk and they're delivering the evening news 
And then they say, I was just, sorry, bre- breaking news, breaking news, uh, just come in. Uh, for those of you who inexplicably actually care about information more than people's opinion, we feel like we should let you know that some killer robots have invaded <laughs> and uh, destroying the city of London. Um, and it's possible this could be the end of civilization as we know it. Now, um, <clears throat> does this interest you? Do you live on planet Earth or know someone else who does? Uh, write into us at the Twitter handle, whatever, and or text us on this line, and they then proceed to give a, you know, uh, will these robots pay the congestion tax? I don't think so. It's one rule for London citizens, you know, and residents, and it's another rule for aliens from outer space. And they're reading out all these inane comments as behind them the cityscape is just being obliterated. Yeah. Well, uh, I think it's probably worth saying at this point, although hopefully no one has any doubt, that I think the Sabbath's a pretty good idea. Yeah, I was going to pick up on one. I was going to pick up on one aspect of that. Uh, it, there is one aspect. So the the whole thing about the Sabbath is it's it's periodicity. It's it's regularness. Um, the the lesson title had the word rhythm in it. Rhythms of rest. I was wondering, is rest? How useful is it to have it in a regular rhythmic? pattern i mean if you think about the way we do annual leave from most modern jobs you you work hard for a period of weeks with with little rest you store that rest up and then you go and have it as a as a lump block um you brought up modern jobs different now you gotta listen to a 10 minute diatribe about it (laughs) (laughs) i have so much to complain about with modern jobs. And this is very on topic, in fact, <clears throat> because there is nothing rhythmic about modern jobs. You don't work longer in summer and shorter in winter. You don't go outside when the light is brighter and, and, and inside when it's dark. You don't sleep according to the seasons. You don't work according to the needs of work. You have to be in the office for eight hours a day, regardless of how busy your job actually is on that given day. And there's no flexibility to it. You can't work longer if you need to. You can't work shorter if you need to. You have to take your rest at prescribed times and in prescribed amounts that have no bearing or relation to whether or not you actually need rest, but only are connected to whatever you're allocated under whatever HR system the organization has. There's no rhythm, no common sense, no connection to nature or human benefit or our bodies and minds well-being whatsoever. It's utter garbage. The entire system under which we all labor, all of our adult lives, is hot nonsense. Continue. Is this something you feel strongly about, Luke? <laughs> yeah, I was, just, I was just wondering when you were going to start saying, speaking your mind clearly, Luke. You, you've been a bit ambiguous there. But, but, but... I, I think, Luke, the word, the phrase that came to mind as you were saying that was, it is metered rather than rhythmic. Mm, yes. So, so metered in the sense of here, it's there's each one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. We've got this meter that is the uh, the, the that's even in every way, uh, but. Uh, what we really need is rhythm, which has the meter as a base, but variation on it uh, to, a, to to create the interest. So I, I think that that's raises a, the a really good com- uh, sort of analogy, Ken. Yeah, this, but this is the problem. This is sort of precisely the problem. Then now I've got a better vocabulary to express my question: Is the Sabbath rhythmic rest or metered rest? 
<laughs> I guess it, it depends uh, with what attitude you approach it. I mean, Pat, this is, I, this I is think a if very you, if fresh you thought. To prescribe, yeah, it, no, you go ahead. I've talked enough. <laughs> I just, I think this is a really fresh thought. The, um, what would, so I think you're right. And I think one of the things that can go wrong with the Sabbath, you know, they're particularly for younger people, for kids in the family or for teenagers wanting to stretch the boundaries of what the community is saying is okay. Sabbath doesn't tend to feel very much like it's a benefit or common sense. It can, it can very easily feel like an arbitrary restriction, can't it? I think perhaps they could use this vocabulary and they could say, my problem with Sabbath is that it's just an, it's meted out. It's arbitrary. It doesn't match the the rhythms of my life. And then people tend to age a little further and get to the point where by the time they've finished Friday afternoon, they're actually exhausted and they're well ready for a rest. And they start to think, you know what? There's something beautifully rhythmic about this Sabbath. I think this is a really wise <laughs> thing. Um, you know, are you saying, Locke, that the reason God prescribed the Sabbath is because he's so old? <laughs> I mean, it, it perhaps that is true. Perhaps he just needed a nap. <laughs> what I was going to say is, I think we can we could perhaps unpack a little bit the difference in the life situation and the attitude towards Sabbath of your adult person and your young person. Uh, especially let's take a traditional Adventist Sabbath. There's a bunch of rules around what you can and can't do. It starts at sunset on Friday and it finishes at sunset on Saturday and you're not allowed to work on it. Now, when you're an adult being not allowed to work, being morally justified in not working on your job, which you don't like for all the reasons I just enumerated um, is a blessing and you look forward to it and you welcome it. When you're a young person who doesn't have the stress, who doesn't have the responsibility and hasn't actually gone into that nine to five, five days a week, regardless of circumstances, situation, then the Sabbath is mostly about restrictions. It's the mm. same as all your other days, but less fun. And mm. I think that's probably where mm. the difference lies. But, but okay, so here is an important... And the only rhythmic part of it is that... Go on. Well, I was going to say, the the rhythmic part of it is the is is the uh, uh, the varying length of the day uh, in the seasons, and particularly in the lower latitudes, you uh, uh, get very long days, and so you know you, the restrictions, if you like, that are placed on you uh, go from very early in the morning till very late <laughs> at night. So here's here's the question that I want to pose, Locke, based on your scenario is if the adult's life was more like the child's life, would their attitude towards the Sabbath change? Or to put it in another way, is if we're thinking about justifications for the Sabbath and we've kind of considered utility, all right, this is a little bit of an extension of that, but is it a sufficient justification for the Sabbath to say your life, the rest of the time is at best meaningless and drab and at worst horrible? therefore the sabbath or well, if the rest of I your life is a... good is this does the sabbath still have value well w one of the things that uh, i guess we're skirting around is uh if i say to you i will spend tomorrow fishing the meaning of that experience is very much contained in what i will need to do to fish are you going to do it with a rod or a net or something else if i tell you i'm going to spend tomorrow or a resting, trawler <laughs> 
Or trawler. If I say I'm going to spend tomorrow resting, your first question is, well, resting from what? Mm. So, so the meaning of what rest is could mean quite different things depending what you're resting from. And what's hard here is um, when the Sabbath commandment is first instigated in a community of humans... Their life activity. I mean, none of them were doing modern jobs. Jobs, Luke. Uh, so they they weren't having to clock in on a timesheet for their line manager. Um, and and here's my chance to have a rant, but I will avoid it. Why do we still talk about line managers when none of us work in factories? It's just completely stupid nomenclature. But anyway, um, the 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 thing that's so hard to hypothesize is was the work from which they rested, a rewarding, meaningful, engaging activity that had, um, you know, a great deal of intrinsic pleasure, more like the child that we're considering, or was the work from which these ancient societies were resting from, was it arduous labor? Now, one thing is really fascinating is that the Sabbath commandment Obviously, Sabbath is referenced in Genesis at the creation narrative, but the commandment is echoed very strongly in the story of the Exodus. And it's in the story of the Exodus that we get both of the written forms of the Ten Commandments as we quote them. And and in that context, it's much more clear. These people were slaves. By definition, Luke, their working environment was perhaps, if possible, even worse than a, than a modern office job. I, I, I'm I'm sure it was, and I have to be careful here now that you brought up slaves in my rebuttal, <laughs> um, because yes, yeah, slavery enforced work re- without regard for the well-being of the individual, without compensation, unambiguously bad. But let me make this one comparison in terms of arduousness of types of work and types of lifestyle and types of society. If, and this is not a hypothetical, I've done this. I think we've probably all done this. If I go out hiking for a week and I spend 10 hours a day walking, carrying 20 kilograms, I will finish the week refreshed and energized Hmm. and relaxed and feeling really healthy. If I do the same 10 hours a day at a desk for a week, I will be completely knackered at the end of it. Yep. Especially Completely. if that ten hours a day is at a desk through a computer screen in lockdown on holding Zoom every meetings. meeting virtually. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Ten hours of Zoom meetings a day and reading and writing documents. It's important work. It's good work. And I just I feel like I should add something here, because I know that people who work for Adra listen to this. I'm enjoying my new job. I like my new job. This is not about the new job. These are thoughts I've had from a, for oh, a long time. I'm sure you are, Luke. About, about yeah, this modern, is all about your old job. Uh, These are general thoughts about modern working environment and conditions and what they do for their health. Because I've had major health issues since... I've been doing a desk job now for six, seven years. And I've had major health issues as a result. And I have to go out of my way to address them in a way that I would not have to if I was doing a more active job. And I have to do that outside of my work time and without compensation because I don't get paid to keep myself healthy. That's that's, that's another Mm. modern bugbear I have. It's in companies' best interest for their employees to be healthy and active. They should pay employees to exercise. Okay, continue. Yeah, well, this this is really interesting to me because we've now 
connected to a few other touch points, a few other uh, reference points in the lesson itself. Uh, obviously, when you're an Adventist talking about Sabbath, ideas of creation uh, come up. And I've already alluded to the first mention of Sabbath back in Genesis. You're talking, Luke, about things that, you know, whether they're common sense or whether they're smart or whether they're clever, perhaps they're wise. Perhaps what you're calling for is is a greater wisdom amongst employers in understanding how to best yield productivity from the human capital that they're that they're trying to manage and it's interesting to me because cam you you started by pointing out that proverbs does not say it doesn't mention sabbath but if you go and look in proverbs 8 um, which is a bit of an extended um, commendation of wisdom as it's titled in my bible Starting from verse 22, there's a whole string of verses that bring up imagery that's really reminiscent of the Genesis creation narrative. And we know the Genesis creation narrative so well, it's about nothing. There was nothing, and then from from nothingness and chaos, God produces this order and this structure. And in a sense, Sabbath arrives at the end of that as one of the highlights in the narrative of creation. But here in Proverbs 8 starting in verse 22 and going sort of to the end of the chapter, the story is subverted slightly because there's a thing that was present before the Lord, all of his works, before he began them. And the thing seems to be wisdom. So I I don't know. I think that we should have a read of these verses in Proverbs because this is a little bit of a an interesting take on the whole creation narrative and it's an interesting context to play with it in, in the context of wisdom and how that might relate to Sabbath and rest. I reckon we should read verses 22 to 31 mm. or to the end. Yep, 36. Go to the end. Um, I'll start. I was appointed from eternity from the beginning before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given... But it's interesting to see how tracks the, this tracks... Uh, the author the knew the creation account, account um, for sure. Anyway... <laughs> Carrying on, um, when there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world, I'll carry on. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not ignore it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For whoever finds me finds life and receives favour from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death. Yeah, this is really interesting. Thanks for reading that, Ken. Uh, I mean, so many of those themes from the opening chapters of Genesis come through. There's the creation themes, and you commented on the some of the key elements in the sequence. There's oceans, there's waters of the deep, mountains coming forth, um, the, the circle of the heavens, um, which is the firmament of Genesis. Um, skies above and then there's an interesting part of this right at the end there what is it that comes 
This is about finding me finds life and those who hate me love death. Well, life and death are also embedded themes in the creation stories, aren't they? Because the there's the tree of life, there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the consequences of, of eating the fruit from which is death. Um, this this passage in Proverbs 8 is is an interesting retelling of this story with a with a a different central element instead of in Genesis I think in Genesis 1 it's pretty clear that the the central theme there is God's character his power and his character in Proverbs 8 I'm feeling like the central theme here is this almost this personification of wisdom hmm uh, I mean yes you see that very clearly don't you and it's striking isn't it the the so verse 22 the lord possessed me at the beginning of his way so the lord possesses wisdom and wisdom in that sense as claimed here in proverbs predates the created world of genesis mm. i i i i um look the predating is there i was appointed from eternity from the beginning, before the world began. Oh yeah, uh, there was wisdom. Yeah, there you are. Uh, so it's it's stated exactly right there in verse twenty three. The other bit when when we're talking about Sabbath, I, I was looking at the end of verse thirty and, and verse thirty one. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in His presence, rejoicing in His whole world, and delighting in mankind. Yeah. And and that created an illusion for me back to. Um, uh, Genesis 1, verse 31, actually. Uh, God saw all that he had made, and it was mm. very good. Uh, and there was evening and morning, and there was a sixth day. Uh, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because in it he rested from all the work of creating that he'd done. But it seems to me that that, that rest, that blessing that he gives... Because we talk here about blessed is the man who listens to wisdom and that sort of thing. Uh, we see that here in Proverbs. But this delight seems also to be something that's in the Sabbath day uh, when God finishes his creation. It's a beautiful picture of wisdom, a sort of personification of wisdom as this companion of God who who is there and who is full of joy and, and, and you know, blesses blesses people and helps them find life and the favor of the Lord. It's, it's, it, it, we were talking, we were talking about holding things to be of value, whether or not they benefit us. What I get the most out of this Proverbs is that one of the things we should hold at very great value is wisdom, you know? Mm. Mm. There's also an element to this element of seeing joy and wonder and beauty and things. Um, my students are very interested in in finding out... <clears throat> no, it's not true. They're not actually interested. But they make a reasonably concerted effort to appear interested in what will be useful to them. Mm -hmm. Particularly if the task that I've set them doesn't meet their definition of what's useful, they're very quick to point that out to me. Um, and... I thought, all right, well, uh, I said to some the other day, I said, yes, but um, but who wants useful things? Like, surely surely you should wake up in the morning and say, if I don't see something beautiful mm. today, then it will be a bad day. 
Imagine a day going past without seeing something beautiful, something that takes your breath away. Or, and I said, or, or something new, a new idea. Have you ever woken up and thought, oh, I just really need to see some new idea? And um, I, I didn't get the sense from what they told me that they ever had, <laughs> but, um, not the students I was talking to. So, um, yeah, and when, when you start talking about an aesthetic experience, uh, you know, of what use is it? Well, yeah, it's not useful, is it? But, um, you know, it is one of the defining qualities of being human that uh, we, a prisoner stuck in a cell, will paint mm. a picture. The nobility being led to the guillotine would crack jokes with each other. There it's is... of no use at all, but, but there's something essentially human about it. But isn't there something... Oh, I can't find the right word. I, I'm just going to use the word attractive. Um, uh, something that seems right and proper about a useful thing that is also beautiful. Uh, and, and so my example of this is the Concorde. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, I mean, one of the most marvellous uh, technological feats that humanity has achieved uh, and a, a, an aircraft that has capabilities beyond many you know, military fighter jets um yeah uh uh and uh, an amazing capacity a wonderful utility um uh and not just functionally um uh, uh useful or not, not just not just functionally effective um but also technologically very effective but uh not just those things also a real thing of beauty the lines of a concorde mm. Um, are just very, very attractive. And those very attractive lines, as it happens, are lines of superb functionality. Yeah, almost necessity if you're going to be travelling through air at that speed. Yes. Yeah, Luke, I'm sure there's many examples from architecture where you could identify the... The things, the highest architecture come about when there's this confluence. Well, my, my naive mind is thinking of the Sydney Opera House. The, the Sydney Opera House is a good example because, as many are, that is not a purely utilitarian shape for a a building that is designed to perform opera in. <laughs> it mm. was chosen for other reasons. Mm. Um that one, I don't come, look, I don't know if you know this about the Sydney Opera House design, but those sails are all segments of a sphere. If you took them apart and rearranged them, they would form a perfect sphere. <laughs> He's cut the, cut the sphere uh, see, I and arranged them into sails resembling that of a sailing ship because it's a harbour and all of that. But there's, it's not just, it's not just, I mean, we could talk about the, 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 the Zen diagram of art and maths overlapping all day. It's not just artistically beautiful or architecturally beautiful. There's a, there's a beauty to the mathematics of that thing as well. All of those curves. And you can see it if you look closely yeah. at the building. All of the curves are, I don't know the way to describe it. They are in harmony with each other because they mm. are the same curves, different parts of the same curve. The same curved surface mm, of a single sphere. Wow, that's why they all fit each wow. other. I I don't think we've necessarily solved the initial question we posed, but we we have raised some interesting aspects. Uh, one of which is that um, the Sabbath isn't directly addressed in in the Psalms of the Proverbs, but they do talk a lot about 
admiring God for his creative acts and for you know, the person of God receives a lot. And this passage that we've just read um, identifies wisdom as one of those things, you know, it's woven into the creative account. Um, and so there's a lot of themes there that are sort of wrapped around the Sabbath, which are picked up in the Psalms and the Proverbs. But um, there's no sort of admonition, for instance, on whether or not you can swim or not on Sabbath and how far up above the knee the water can come. And I, I do wonder if uh, when we focus on the minutiae of those details, uh, we do God a disservice, maybe focusing more on all the excellent things he has mm. done might might you know provide uh more sabbath keeping sort of motivation i i, I was it popped out of the conversation for a few minutes there during the recording and so i missed i'll look forward to editing it lock so that i can pick up on some of the contributions there's a story that that i needs to be shared because it's so good um this is a non-typical story this is david attenborough not not adrian plaster c.s lewis um but luke your comment about modern jobs made me think of this exactly. David Attenborough was on one of his trips. Um, I don't know when this was, in the 60s or 50s. And they're on a boat and they're going up the east coast of Australia and the, there's a malfunction with the propeller, I think, or the engine on the on the boat. And they limped along. There's a storm coming and they only just made it into the coast. And they hit the coast at a point that was thousands of miles from anywhere. And um, I'll, I'll read out. I'll condense it as I go. Um as we approached the jetty, we were surprised to see a figure seated on one end. He was fishing with his back towards us. I stood in the bows and yelled out to him to catch our line. He didn't move. I hailed him again and again, but still he showed no sign of hearing me. Eventually, our bows scraped against the piles of the jetty, so I had to climb up them. Charles threw me a line, and we made fast. Together, we went over to the man who remained stolidly fishing throughout. I found it hard to believe that anyone in such a lonely spot as this would not be keen to see a new face. G'day, he said. G'day, I replied. Conversation lapsed for some vague reason. I felt it incumbent upon me to keep it going. I explained who we were, where we'd come from. When I finally came to an end, he pulled in his line, stiffly got to his feet, looked at me and said, The name's Mac. Uh, with that, he turned and slowly walked away along the, the jetty's bare feet, um, slapping on the hot sun-bleached planks. Um, we were there for several days. Mac, we discovered, actually had a job. He received a small salary from some official authority to be permanently on hand on the jetty in case, in order to catch the lines of any craft that might put in. We'd been, in. we'd been his only customer for many months. The Americans had built an airstrip, which was being preserved in case for an, as an emergency landing ground, and Mac had the additional responsibility of taking up heavy drums of aviation spirit landed at the jetty every six months or so to a dump on the airstrip and maintaining the airstrip. Um, Mac had... Uh, and then there's a description of this car which was falling to bits and the radiator leaked uh, despite the fact that Mac had poured in repeated billyfuls of porridge into it it still continued to drip this he reckoned was willful obstinacy <laughs> um, okay Mac lived on the hill above the shore in a shelter of rusting corrugated iron that was almost submerged by a huge tip of empty beer cans and broken bottles when he wasn't sitting on the jetty with a fishing line in his hand he spent most of his time outside this shack just sitting one evening I went up and joined him. In a burst of unusual loquacity, he told me what had first brought him here. He'd come here to search for gold. Many other men had been prospecting in the same area both before and since. A few of them had made good strikes, but not Mac. Found a few colours, he said in a matter-of-fact tone, but never enough to make it payable. He rolled himself a cigarette one-handed. I didn't bother going on looking after a couple of years at it. There's still plenty up there if you're interested, he added. 
but as far as I'm concerned, it can stay. I'm right. How long have you been here now? I asked. Thirty-five year, he replied. Well, I said jocularly, I reckon I must know why you stayed. Those oysters on the jetty are the finest in the world that I've ever tasted. Mac lit his cigarette. The paper flamed and he puffed hard until the tobacco was properly light. That's good, he said. I'm partial to a nice oyster. I often wondered what they'd be like. <laughs> he leaned against the wall of his hut. I've been meaning to get round to picking off a few. Just never seem to have the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, good story. what uh, he needed was a good <laughs> Sabbath rest so that he could go picking, you know, picking oysters. oysters. <laughs> yes. Um, what, it, what, that, what that reminded me of, Cam, funnily enough, was the, the concept that I'd recently, it recently been expressed to me by my brother, who's also very interested in these things. Um, the concept of readiness, right? If, if, if somebody is held in ready, in readiness, in case they're needed, right, what does that mean? Well, it must mean, by definition, that they are not flat out doing things right now. So if someone's job is to be ready to do something, oh, that's they cannot be occupied by tasks the whole time. Otherwise, they are not in readiness. So this modern concept that if we're at work, we have to be doing something productive all the time is completely unapplicable to many, many circumstances where people have to be ready to go and do something. If you are ready to go and do something, you are not doing it now. And neither you're doing anything that will distract you, know, you from Mac was obviously it when very good at being ready for a boat to come into the jetty. He was he was doing his job very well. He was doing his job very well in many ways. The airstrip was still yeah. serviceable, and he was at the jetty. He didn't catch the rope for them when they came in, but he, he looked after uh, them. A minor, a minor, yeah. Phase. <laughs> That's right. yeah. at least, at he least was he said hello. Yeah, but um. But the concept of readiness is also one that we Adventists hold dear in terms of the concept of the second coming. And I think it's a separate issue that it deserves a whole many multiple podcast episodes. But in none of the parables about the second coming, does Christ say the master who is returning home expects them to be waiting at the door? He <clears throat> he doesn't seem interested whether they can anticipate his the timing of his return. He just wants them to be ready for a return at any any point in time and uh, focusing on the date and whether the return soon or not seems so unprofitable I'm not sure what object it serves and it, it doesn't seem well supported by yes. by scripture um, there's but this idea of being ready and Sabbath as as a mechanism to help us you're you, you're saying Luke that readiness is has mm. some element of inactivity to it and uh, maybe the Sabbath is our day to be in readiness to help other people like, you haven't made plans for yourself on that day. There's nothing that's sort of going to distract you or take you away uh, from from what's going on. That's that day where you're just ready in case you notice something. Like, if you see someone in distress, you can stop and help them because you've got nothing mm. on. You can... Cam, we're at the time where it'd be good to wrap up, and that's a pretty good point to wrap up on. Oh, I've got one more that I want to wrap up with. It's sort of it's it sums up everything that we've been talking right, about. Okay. With with regard to values and purpose and holding things to be important. Um and it's actually from the abolition of man, Cam. So yeah. Because I was trying to think, what is this discussion reminding me of? Because I've read Abolition of Man recently off the back of a previous podcast. Um, C.S. Lewis, Lewis yeah. Here's, here's a, two little sections that are close by each other. 
Um, up until quite modern times, all teachers and even all men believed the universe to be such that certain emotional reactions on our part could be either congruous or incongruous to it, believed, in fact, that objects did not merely receive, but could merit our approval or disapproval, our reverence or our contempt. The reason why Coleridge agreed with the tourist who called the cataract sublime and disagreed with the one who called it pretty was, of course, that he believed inanimate nature to be such that certain responses could be more just or ordinate or appropriate to it than others. And he believed correctly that the tourists thought the same. The man who called the cataract sublime was not intending simply to describe his own emotions about it. He was also claiming that the object was one which merited those emotions. So I think when we talk about the value of the Sabbath, um, or indeed the value of, of rest, um, or the value of honesty, or the value of truth, or the value of wisdom, we are all agreeing with C.S. Lewis here that that there is, it's not just our opinion. It's not just our there opinion. There is an objective reality out there. There is an objective existence of wisdom that merits our pursuing it because it is good, that merits our reverence, mm. that merits our effort. Um, and I think that's worth mm. thinking about. I, I think it's really, okay. I think it's really, uh, yeah, hesitate to raise it at this point. I think it's really interesting that what you say there is um, that there is a reality out there that merits, uh, that, that has a, an objective merit. It need not be that objective merit and that reality itself may not have as its central component mm. materiality. Reality might be something more, uh, something different to simply materiality. Um, anyway, that's, a, that's another discussion as well. Mm. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, uh, we do need to wrap it up, so we'll, we'll leave it there. Any listeners who want to email us can at the email address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and uh, feel free as always to share this podcast I know that there's lots of people in lockdown at the moment and um, and uh, one gets a bit desperate I imagine this might be selling ourselves short if I'm suggesting that only desperate people would want to listen to our <laughs> podcast but in, in in shutdown I can imagine that there w- might be people who, who would like an extra uh, discussion point source perhaps people missing out on their subsequent lessons so feel free to share this um, with anyone that you think might benefit from it. And uh, thank you so much for listening and join us next, uh, next week for our next episode.